The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. This week we're discussing Black Lives Matter, and in particular its religious overtones. That's not to say that it's a religious movement. It clearly isn't. But listen to this. I will use my voice in the most uplifting way possible. And do everything in my power to educate my community. I will love my black neighbors the same as my white ones. That was the sound of a group of Black Lives Matter protesters, nearly all of them white, most of them millennials, sitting outside a public library in Bethesda, Maryland, which by the way, is about 97% white, so good luck finding those black neighbours. When the footage appeared on YouTube, several conservative commentators noted that it looked as if the kids were getting ready to drink the Kool-Aid. I was reminded not so much of a cult as certain Catholic services I attended as a child, where you had to keep on repeating what the priest said. Anyway, watching that film, and the appalling scenes of violence that followed it, got me thinking about mass movements of the past whose hysterical behaviour was very often inspired by religious doctrine. So I consulted my old friend Professor Richard Landis, who for many years taught medieval history at Boston University, now lives in Israel, and is an expert on millennial or apocalyptic movements. This is what he had to say. The movement is on many different levels I think, not genuine. In other words, a great deal of their rhetoric is based on fundamentally false, empirically false, even you might call it ideologically false positions. Starting with, I think one of their grounding points is the principle that blacks can't be racists. This is something that I first heard really in the sort of late 1990s. I was sitting with two of my students and a professor who had come to speak. You know him, Chip Berlay. And Chip was explaining to me that according to the principles of, he didn't call it wokeness at the time, but according to current principles, because racism is a discourse of power, therefore, and blacks don't have power, they can't be racist. So not only is it false that blacks don't have power, but the idea that you can't be racist if you're oppressed is ludicrous. The first time I noticed Black Lives Matter was in 2014 in the Ferguson riots. And then, you know, later discovered that their iconic gesture, hands up, don't shoot, was actually fake. It was, it did not happen in Ferguson. It may have happened in other cases. It's one of these uh, sort of symbolically true stories. No matter how fake it is, you have to accept it because it makes the point that they want to make, which is that blacks are victims. 
Now, that's a very interesting point that Richard Landis has made there. Hands up, don't shoot are words and a gesture of an appeal for mercy attributed to Michael Brown, who was shot dead by a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri on August 9th, 2014. Brown was an African-American man who just robbed a convenience store. The officer who shot him said he did so because he thought Brown was about to grab his weapon and kill him. The exact sequence of events is not clear, but here's the point. No one at the time remembered Brown making a gesture of surrender and raising his hands and saying, don't shoot. That claim was made three days later by Brown's accomplice in the robbery, and no one else. Even the ultra-liberal Washington Post described it as an outright lie, which it clearly was. And President Obama's Department of Justice acknowledged this. But the combination of the gesture and the apocryphal words was seized on by Black Lives Matter, who encouraged and are still encouraging protesters to make the gesture and say the words. In 2015, an Episcopal priest commissioned an icon of Our Lady of Ferguson in which the Madonna and child have their arms up. So it's symbolic, as are the gestures adopted by most religious movements. But of course, there are many differences, and one of them is that this ritual gesture is based on a demonstrable untruth. The fact that Black Lives Matter clings onto it doesn't, of course, make it a religious movement but it does raise questions about the extent to which its beliefs are grounded in reality. Imagine if the famous story of Rosa Parks, the black activist and seamstress who, in 1955, refused to give up her seat on a bus for a white man in Montgomery, Alabama, was actually a myth. She'd done no such thing. Would the civil rights movement have turned her into what she genuinely was, which was one of America's national heroines? I don't think so. They wouldn't have got away with it, and they wouldn't have wanted to. Such was their integrity. Now let's move forward 64 years to August 2019, when NPR, that's America's very liberal national public radio, published a review of a book called Hands Up, Don't Shoot, by Jennifer E. Cabina. It's a study of the long prelude to and the reaction following the events in Ferguson, hence the name. Now, I haven't read the book, all I've read is the review by NPR's reviewer, Nicholas Canariato, who makes it clear that it chronicles many acts of appalling racism, including the persecution of young black men by the police. What struck me was that Canariato, in his relatively long review of the book, nowhere points out that its title, Hands Up, Don't Shoot, is based on words that were never said. The author has the nerve to end his review by quoting Maya Angelou, who wrote that history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived. But what if we're actually talking about a deceitful myth that exploits real events in an attempt to distort the entire narrative of recent American history? Christians have often been accused of manipulating the rather patchy records we have of the life of the historical Jesus in order to construct a myth. I'm not saying they're guilty of it, but we're never going to reach a consensus. It was too long ago. Black Lives Matter and its allies, on the other hand, are busy turning real and very well-documented injustices into fantasies that incorporate many elements of fringe ideology. There's something for everybody. Everybody, that is, who's not too concerned about historical accuracy or the covering up of inconvenient data. 
Black Lives Matter has always been an amorphous movement. Its founders, three black women academics, were careful from the beginning to construct a movement that could incorporate quite disparate elements. So if you examine the statements and literature coming out of the movement, you'll find, for example, Afrocentric history, which isn't really history at all, because it describes fictional achievements to great African civilizations, which supposedly anticipated the greatest discoveries of European civilization, and this has been hushed up. There's also some revolutionary Marxism. That arrived when Black Lives Matter invited the far-left anti-far movement into their big tent though significantly they weren't interested in what you might call colour-blind economic socialism, which focused on class instead of race. That was what Bernie Sanders was into in 2016, and it was made very clear to him that, that he must endorse Black Lives Matter, which he didn't want to, get with the identity politics programme, or his candidacy would be blown out of the water. He eventually reluctantly signed on the dotted line. There are elements of New Age spirituality and, far more important, black sexual identity politics. The founders of Black Lives Matter were highly educated black women, most of whom identified as lesbian or queer. Over the last few years, they've become increasingly preoccupied by the subject of black trans rights. And that itself is remarkable, given that historically the black community has, to put it politely, struggled with homophobia, though obviously you're not encouraged to mention this. And if you go online, you'll find that leading Black Lives Matter activists express their support for black trans rights in the language of postmodern academic discourse, which again isn't big in the black community, but is very familiar to the movement's white millennial supporters, most of whom have been virtually force-fed it at university. So all these disparate elements add up to, well, nothing very coherent ideologically, at least nothing that can be analysed easily in terms of 20th century ideology. The glue holding it together seems to be little more than anti-whiteness. Here's Richard Landis again. We're talking about a very dangerous situation where the voice of reason is lost. And it reminds me of the millennial movements that I study, which is that, you know, these are movements in which the voice of reason is like chaff in the wind and they just carry the day with slogans and with enemies. There's a famous line from Eric Hoffer's uh, True Believers. And in it, he says, look, you know, a mass movement can start without a God, but it can't start without a devil. And a lot of these movements work that way. In other words, they they appeal. Everybody has their own idea of what collective salvation will look like. And they want to be as little specific as possible because they want to let people fantasize. The problem is that there are so many fantasies being played out in the Black Lives Matters protests. Can we make out any broad patterns that make it easier for us to understand what's going on? It's surely quite an urgent priority, given that American society is basically falling apart in front of our eyes. Here's one way of looking at it. Richard Landis has been writing for years about the survival of what are essentially pre-modern honour-shame cultures, as they're called, in the modern world. That is a culture of not losing face, settling scores, fierce tribal identity. 
Honest traditions, as Richard points out, are very important in the Arab world. They're very important to the Palestinians, for example, and still part of life in America's black community. Now, this is about culture, not race. We're all familiar with the honor-shame traditions of the Italian mafia, and we know that they still exist in the Balkans. Then there's the culture of the more fervent white supporters of Black Lives Matter. That finds expression in identity politics. And that makes it a bit difficult to nail down, because we're talking about a whole range of meticulously cultivated but competing grievances. There is a tribal element, but also something largely missing from honor-shame culture. Voluntary self-abasement. Where does that come from? I think a clue lies in the fact that this self-abasement goes hand-in-hand with the policing of language. The citadels of this culture are the elite universities of New England and neighbouring states. That is, a part of America whose intellectual traditions can be traced back to the Puritans and which became more, not less, rigid once they discovered postmodernism, which, at the same time it was disposing of notions of objective truth, was also charmingly reviving the old New England practice of witch-hunting. This Puritan postmodernism, on the face of it, hasn't got anything in common with radical black activism. But Black Lives Matter has a foot in both camps, and has managed to forge an alliance between the two. Not the first, perhaps, but infinitely the most powerful. It makes expert use of the media, for example, something previous generation of black activists, many of whom were older black men with some distinctly unprogressive views, had never quite managed to do. For a measure of that power, look at the way the liberal media, passionate advocates for social distancing, suddenly forgot all their anxieties about the coronavirus as soon as the protests began. Then, of course, they rediscovered them in time for the Trump rallies. And all this, says Richard Landis, is leading absolutely nowhere. It is interesting that taking the knee has gone from an act of defiance to an act of, in a sense, of submission. We had the same phenomenon, incidentally, during the Oslo process. The post-Zionists were convinced that if they apologized to the Palestinians for all the wrongs that the Israelis had done, that the Palestinians would embrace them and there would be peace. And instead, when they apologized, the Palestinians jumped on them and said, aha, finally you admit all the terrible things that you did. We hate you even more. But let me end with a caveat. At the moment, Black Lives Matter is having millions of dollars thrown at it by corporations and celebrities. And I do think that's really about appeasing the black community or addressing historic grievances. It's competitive virtue signaling. Literally competitive. If you don't make the right noises, you can lose market share. If you do make the right noises, then perhaps there's money to be made. And companies really need to make money at the moment. Meanwhile, the mainstream Christian churches are busy wringing their hands and fantasizing about their supposedly wicked racist past. That's perhaps the most pathetic spectacle of all, because all they're trying to do, as I was saying last week, is force their way back into a public square, and in the process, in a very small way, contributing to its vandalism. The groveling of the Catholic Church, in particular, has been truly painful to witness. 
painful and for those who believe that the Catholic Church should uphold traditions of free speech, utterly shaming. A couple of weeks ago, Father Daniel Maloney, Catholic chaplain to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, wrote an email to his students discussing the moral questions raised by the killing of George Floyd. He condemned that killing unequivocally, but he also had the courage to say that at the moment we cannot be absolutely sure that Mr. Floyd's killing was inspired by racism. And Father Maloney also deplored the unchristian way in which accusations of racism were being flung around social media. Somebody complained to Father Maloney's employers, the Archdiocese of Boston, led by Cardinal Sean O'Malley, which immediately sacked him as chaplain to MIT. In other words, the Catholic Church didn't so much ask him to give up his seat as throw him under the bus. This will not end well. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.